Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Catherine Davies is a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Sheffield. Her research focuses on personal relationships, particularly with family and friends. Catherine has published a number of articles about young people's sibling relationships and is currently writing a book about the significance of siblings in the life course. Catherine's most recent research, funded by the British Academy and the ESRC, explores how Brexit has affected everyday family relationships in the UK. Hi, Dr. Catherine Davies. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. And we're very excited to, we've, we've done a lot of research into your work ahead of this interview. And first of all, one of the most striking things about your work is that you've done some interesting research on the impact of Brexit and Brexit discussion on family life. And I think before the pandemic, that was a very, very big talking point, you know, in, in sort of friendship groups and, you know, how has the Brexit decision affected relationships, not just with family, but also friends. So tell us a little bit about that work first. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been quite a project. So I think that originally, we thought that we'd seen a lot of things in the media about kind of families at war about Brexit. And we hear like divided Britain a lot. And I'm a sociologist of like families and relationships. So I kind of thought, well, people must be working this out somehow. There must be a lot of families where they voted differently. How are they getting on? Like, what are they going to do about Christmas? And how are they going to... So we followed about 12 families for a year and to see kind of how they dealt with Brexit over time. The pandemic actually happened during that year as well. So that was interesting. And we noticed that actually families are quite good in general at managing conflict and disagreement. So there were a lot of families where people had voted differently or where they disagreed on other things as well. Like people, maybe one of them like Jeremy Corbyn more and And they were able to kind of negotiate that through quite a lot of skilled work. So things like going and making a cup of tea to change the subject, putting something different on the television, using your knowledge of that person. So mothers, for example, who disagreed with like their grown up children would know that person well. They knew their temperament. They knew when to kind of back off from conversation, when to change the subject. So although... There were families who'd had difficulties. We found that families were actually able to kind of use their skills at doing family things to kind of navigate that. And Catherine, do you think that a sort of a consequence, if you like, a positive consequence of having so much to debate during that particular year and then followed by lockdown, families have had more time to have that sort of rich family talk and become better practised at debate and discussion to some degree. 
Yeah, that's an interesting point, because actually, there has been some research that's found that what you kind of get from your parents politically, isn't necessarily their opinions. But it's the way they broach politics and talk about politics. So you might have grown up in a family where politics was talked a lot. And that's kind of what you've got from your parents, rather than necessarily following their opinions. So I think you're right. I think that it has created these kinds of conversations. But I think that for some people, Brexit was so upsetting that some people have actually gone the other way and have just stopped talking about it. It's not necessarily a safe thing to bring up in certain situations. It can ruin a family gathering, for example. So sometimes it's been as much about learning when to stay quiet and hold your tongue as it is about having those open conversations. And I guess it's knowing when to hold your tongue and when to have a discussion. Whilst we're on the theme of family communication and discussion, tell us a little bit about knowing what you do from the research evidence. What are the sort of the optimal ways of having a family discussion that will enable and empower young people and enrich thinking? Yeah, well, I suppose the optimal way would be the same with adults as with young people, which is to listen. And we had a lot of people in our study who were doing that. So who were able to try and listen to other people's points of view. Also, I think that ultimately, if you care about that person, if you love that person, you kind of want them to think well of you. So there were a lot of people in the study For example, people who'd voted to leave and had children who either had been too young to vote but would have voted to remain or had voted to remain. And those parents really, really wanted their children to understand that from their point of view, they'd made a rational decision. They didn't want their children to think that they'd made a bigoted decision or that they didn't understand. And so I think there's a sense as well of wanting to explain your own point of view and I think if you're coming at it from that perspective of wanting somebody to understand your point of view and you wanting to understand theirs then that's like your ideal political conversation but it's not as easy and I understand that every conversation can't be an optimal one and sometimes you just can't help yourself but make a little comment and I think most people in my study had at least done that once or twice. And I think as well, it's about empathy. It's about trying to develop empathy for someone else's position. It's about flexibility of thinking and being open to being challenged, no matter the topic. Yeah. I've just thought, actually, another thing that came up that could be relevant here is a generation. So I think sometimes it can be tempting for people in older generations to kind of use that expertise a little bit and be like well if you'd have lived through the miners strike I remember voting in and if you had been there then you would know where I'm coming from it's because you're young you don't understand the world the way I do and I think that's always going to antagonize a younger person. Mm, That's fascinating. And of course, within these families are siblings. And one of the questions that I am routinely asked by parents and families over the years is about the sibling relationship. So it's very exciting to find a sociologist with a similar interest in this area. So tell us 
Let's talk about siblings and how important they are across children's life trajectories. I know from my reading of the research that siblings are much more important in terms of the other siblings' uh, mental health and well-being, etc., than people might ordinarily think, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. Siblings are really important. In childhood, having that kind of lateral relationship, so somebody who's like a peer but also you kind of have quite an intense sort of knowledge of your sibling especially if you're living in the same house and growing up in the same house it's quite an embodied relationship in childhood so I mean I've got two boys and they'll wrestle and fight and it'll, they'll be play fight and real fight and it, and as well as hug and play and it's a very embodied relationship for them too which I think is quite unique and interesting it's the only relationship I think where it's kind of seen as socially acceptable to sometimes fight physically even though we might not think as parents that that's optimal I think that it's taken for granted that siblings will do that sometimes which is interesting so yes I think it's very important it's also you know one of our most long-lasting social relationships so you have this period in childhood where you're if you live together, which not obviously not all siblings do, or you're very much in each other's pockets. And I think we might talk in a little while about the role of siblings in shaping your identity and your sense of who you are. And they're very fundamental for that. But then as we grow up as well, there might be points in our life course when we want our siblings again, or where those relationships become important again. So there's a sense that children have that their sibling relationship is permanent and will always be there. So the benefits are, you just mentioned the sort of the wrestling between two boys. I have two boys as well, but there's a lot of sort of comparison, judgment, challenge. Like they are really, they will go through one another and, and say, but you said that yesterday, they're always testing one another as well. And I think there's so much to unpick, but the age gap, the the challenges for each sibling depending on the birth order there's a lot to sort of comprehend there yeah absolutely it's really complicated and I think that a lot of people want to know what's the kind of optimal configuration of siblings so people will often say to me like oh what's the best gap to leave between having children or what's the best combination of like gender what's or you'll say you've got two boys and people go Oh, blimey. Do you know what I mean? And I think that people are always kind of wondering that. There's a kind of fascination in thinking about that. But actually, I don't think it's an answerable question in that sense, because for a number of reasons, I think, obviously, every sibling relationship is different. But also the way that birth order or gender or age is negotiated in the home is very different than how it's negotiated at school. Or I did some observations of children at holiday clubs. So, you know, where after school club or this was in the summer holidays and the sibling relationship was really different there. They were a really kind of siblings were a really good source of support in the holiday club where they didn't know anybody else and they kind of stuck together a lot. Whereas at school, a lot of people in my study didn't really talk to their siblings and just kind of stayed quite separate. And then at home, obviously, you've got a bit more of a kind of, we would call it 
the backstage in that it's not such a public setting you can kind of be a little bit more relaxed and that might be the only arena where fighting occurs for example so it's not fixed how those relationships are lived in different settings so depending on the environment and the other demands on each child in terms of peer pressure and you know their own social identity being negotiated in these different environments the sibling relationship changes and shifts absolutely and also if you think about it even birth order isn't always fixed for children so for example if a child has parents who have separated then they might be the eldest child at their mum's house and then they might be the middle child at their dad's house so that's not even necessarily fixed that's interesting isn't it Mm. so how can gender stereotyping in parenting impact on the sibling relationship Yeah, so first of all, I don't think it's just parents. Gender stereotyping is everywhere and parents might be trying really hard not to stereotype their children. And then still, you know, you might have like a girl and boy and you might find that against all your efforts, the girl just wants to wear pink. And, you know, there's a lot of influences in terms of gender stereotyping from elsewhere too. But I think that in terms of sibling relationships... There's a kind of interesting thing going on where there is a sense that certainly young people have that there are kind of quite idealised ways of doing siblingship. So a lot of people would say, I really wish I'd had a big brother because he'd be able to look after me and he would protect me. And then somebody would say, I wish I had a sister because then we'd be like best friends and we'd be able to. And they imagined what these kinds of gendered sibling relationships would be like. But then... In reality, people would have a big brother and they'd be like, well, my big brother never looks after me or, you know, like my sister doesn't like the same things as me. And so there's a kind of disconnect often between our kind of image of what a brother should do and what a sister should do and what an older child should do and what a younger child should do. And actually, in reality, it doesn't always work like that at all. And it's much more kind of messy. (laughs) And what about parental pressure that we all put on our eldest and we say, look after your brother, you know, you're his big brother, or we expect you to do this and that. So you can imagine just with that phrase, we are sowing the seeds potentially of resentment. Who wants to have to look after someone else when you want to have a good time at the holiday club? So I think that parental influence is quite interesting here. What is our influence in terms of a determinant between how they get along yeah I think that's a really good point and you're right like the holiday club thing the eldest siblings often did have like quite a hard time they were always losing the lunch boxes and there was like quite a lot of pressure on them to kind of keep the stuff as well if the yeah so I do think that there's a lot of pressure on parents to get parenting siblings right and there's all sorts of parenting books about that isn't there and like how to make your children get along and I think that comparing children to one another can be the root of quite a lot of resentment. But what else are we to do as parents? You know, even from pregnancy, like, you know, when you're pregnant the second time, you compare it to the first time because that's your only experience of that. Like, do you feel as sick? Are you as tired? You know, like, is your bump bigger? And then the baby's born and you're like, well, is this one going to sleep 
the same as the older one. And I don't really know how you cannot do that just because you're just trying to learn how to look after a person and that's your main experience of it is what the other person you had to look after was like. So I think the comparing thing annoys children, but it's really, really difficult not to do it as a parent. Yeah, and I think that the putting responsibility, I think you're right. I think that giving too much responsibility to the older child can cause resentment. But I also think we should remember that children have a lot of agency and they can get things from one another so the older child things can be passed up in families as well so the older child can get things from their younger child like I mean this is a personal example but my youngest boy when he started reception last year he was on the playground and he found my eldest child's coat that he'd just strewn around as he was playing football or whatever and bless him, he picked it up and brought it home. And that's the sort of thing that, like, I didn't say to him, you need to make sure if you see any of Rory's coats, you pick. But he did that. So I think that older children can still be a little bit looked after by their younger siblings as well. And it's not always the case that you things pass downwards. I think one of the challenges as a parent is demonstrating a sort of equality, you know, that you are treating them the same. Because if they get a whiff of injustice, if they get a whiff that you have totally different rules, depending on which child, it can be really damaging for their relationship. Yeah, that's really important. And I think you're right. Children, they have such a kind of like heightened sense of fairness So I think it's important that parents are able to explain their decision making. But you know what? Even that is sometimes a little bit out of your control. Like if you think about lockdown, for example, and homeschooling. So, you know, a lot of parents are in a situation where they're homeschooling both their children. They're trying to give equal time, but they're different ages. They've got different amounts of schoolwork. So you might end up having to prioritise one person having the tablet or whatever and then there was in the the first school closure in the UK, and I know that they've been different all over the world, but in the UK, certain school years were allowed back before others. So then parents are in a situation where their children actually weren't in the same boat anymore. And one child was kind of allowed to go back out into the world and live their life again. And the other one was still stuck at home for months. And then that sort of idea that like policy decisions and the wider kind of socioeconomic environment can kind of scupper your plans to be fair. So we see this with teenagers a lot with like, you know, you might have one child who goes to university and then they hike tuition fees for the other one and they're graduating into completely different economic circumstances. And I think those sorts of things are really hard for parents. You try so hard to be equal, but sometimes it's really hard to, you're kind of against the grain doing that. What you're making me reflect on is that a lot of the national research on the impact of the lockdowns on children's mental health in general focused a little bit on the disproportionate negative impact on only children. Whereas I think anecdotally, a lot of families have said to me, oh my goodness, you know, thank goodness they had each other during lockdown. And suddenly the, the sibling, even if they were three or four years younger, became the only playmate. And surely that must have shifted that relationship in a much more, you know, into a much more cohesive package to some degree. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, my 
research happened before the pandemic, but I can certainly think about some of the principles and apply them. And then I was mothering my children in the pandemic as well. So I was kind of observing what they were doing. And yeah, I think you're right. I think that there's always been a kind of social anxiety around only children and thinking about how that's going to affect children. And I think that was definitely heightened. And then I and I agree, there was the idea of like, thank goodness, they've got one another, they've got a playmate, the idea that having somebody of the same age is like super important to children. But then of course, that isn't always positive. There are ups and downs of that. And I imagine there were a lot of children who as one of the things that's challenging about siblings who live together is the kind of being together physically all the time. Bedrooms were quite space, especially people who have to share a bedroom. That can be lovely, but it can also be really challenging. And I imagine that young people who were in those sorts of situations will have struggled. I guess the highs will have been higher and the lows will have been lower (laughs) when they were kind of stuck together and couldn't kind of escape the house. And I know that parents will listen to this who might have only children and they'll be dying for me to ask you, you know, will my child be okay? Do they have better outcomes or worse outcomes if they don't have siblings? Should I be compensating for that peer company? That's always a question, I think, understandably, that parents of only children have. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that a lot of that is a kind of assumption that we have that having a sibling or not having a sibling will really affect how we kind of turn out as adults. So, and I feel like there's been quite a kind of preoccupation, almost a fascination with trying to figure out like, how do you turn out if you're the oldest? How do you turn out if you're an only child? How do youngest children turn out differently to middle children and things like that? And I think it's interesting that we want to know those answers, but I don't think it's as simple as that. There are so many other factors and also cultural diversity within that as well. So the way that birth order works in South Asian families might be different. That you know, There was the one child policy in China, for, so there was a whole generation of only children there. So I think that there isn't kind of a sort of one answer to that. And I think that it very much depends on your kind of situation. Cousins can be really important. Cousins can be interesting because they have that shared kind of lateral nature. They're of the same sort of generation. They have some of those advantages but they don't have the like living in the same house, living on top of each other, physical fighting sort of element. And so there might be some benefits from being an only child who has some really nice cousins or some really good friends. So yeah, I I wouldn't ever want to say that that would be a disadvantage. So it really depends on the rich tapestry of your own family life and also whatever is going on between parents, if you're co-parenting, the nature of that relationship, the quality of relationship that that child enjoys in their life is really, you know, there are so many relationships within that child's entire experience. Definitely, definitely. So you've just mentioned there a birth order. I'm a middle child. So people are always saying, oh, middle children, you know, they're always left to their own devices and they're much more resilient. So I have to ask, is that <laughs> is that backed up by research? <laughs> no, I don't think no. it is really. So there has been some studies that have looked at 
sort of various configurations of siblings and tried to figure out how they affect mainly sort of outcomes like how well children do at school for example and that kind of thing and these studies tend to be based on a kind of assumption that you get resources from your parents so you there's a certain amount of like money and time that is available in the house so the more children there are the less of that there is to go around and that that maybe the eldest child gets more of those resources and there have been some studies that have looked at that but I think that they kind of ignore the agency of children themselves you don't just get things from your parents you get things from other children as well so your parents might not have so much time but having time from your siblings could be really wonderful I mentioned before about how eldest children can still get things from their younger siblings so I think that that's a quite a simplistic way of looking at it and I think it's a way of looking at it that is quite parent-centric if you see what I mean And of course, parents are crucial, but children also do get things from one another as well. And so you might grow up in a home where there isn't much money to go around and there isn't much time from your parents, but you have these lot of time from your siblings. And that could be a really rich home to grow up in in the same way as an only child who has all their parents' time. So I don't think that that necessarily, I don't think you can make a rule for that. I think it's very it very much depends but I do think that in some contexts so in school for example being the eldest child I think is experienced quite differently than being the middle or the youngest because school is kind of very much organized around age so the oldest child goes first and here I think is is an example of where getting things from your siblings is probably more useful than things from your parents because your parents will have gone through the school system a long time ago when it was probably all very different. Whereas your big brother or sister might have gone through the school system just a couple of years ahead. They'll know the ins and outs. They've probably gone to the same school. They might not have, but often they do. They might be able to tell you about particular teachers. They'll certainly understand the sort of work you're doing. And middle children and younger children were able to watch their older sibling go through school and learn understand like oh okay if you end up if you don't revise for your GCSEs it can actually be quite bad <laughs> and they can kind of learn from the mistakes that they see their older sibling making so I think that's a place where birth order matters. So to some degree you could argue that the hypothesis might be that the middle child there the second who comes after the first into school could be more resilient because they've been armed with a whole yeah. raft of tools and they know the way the school works. They understand which clubs are good, which teachers are tricky or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And they're, they're ready to go. They have a psychological cushion that the yes. eldest had to, they had to break through the social fabric of the school in a way that the second or the youngest wouldn't have to. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that even just like the familiarity with the school when you're first starting, like seeing your older sibling in the uniform, you've probably been there to pick them up at primary school anyway. And then at secondary school, I think like having a bit more of an understanding of even like the social and cultural ways of doing things at school, you know, like 
how to wear your tie in a cooler way and you know like that those shoes wouldn't go down well and that kind of thing you can learn from your siblings as well but there are disadvantages as well in school of being the middle or the younger because teachers will often compare you to your sibling if if you all go to the same school so there is a sense that the reputation of siblings kind of rubs off on one another at school and I think that the one who goes first does a little bit more to set that reputation one of the young people in my study said well it depends whether your big brother or sister's been naughty or good really doesn't it (laughs) and I think that kind of sums it up so that so assumptions are made about what the younger children will be like based on what their older siblings been like So, yeah, there are some disadvantages as well of going second, I think. So all in all, with you and I have two boys each, you know, would you consider it a much more, again, optimal idea to send them to the same school because there is a kind of a a cushion there? I think it depends on the child. I think that can be an advantage. But then you might have two children who have really, really quite different personalities or abilities And you might make a decision to send them to separate schools because you're thinking about them as an individual with different needs and what's going to be better for that child. I think that's a great decision too. Sometimes you just can't because you haven't got the capacity to do more than one school drop-off. And I think that that's also okay, you know, like because you're kind of thinking about the time that you've got as a family and making decisions accordingly. I mean, I have some friends who have their eldest child and then twins, their second and third child were twins. So they were wondering about whether the twins should go to the same school or whether they should go to a school that was slightly bigger, where the twins could be in separate classes. So there's a lot of sibling thinking going on there, like are twins better off in the same class? Are they better off separate? Are they better off at the same school as their older sibling? Or So yeah, it's quite a complicated decision. And I think that there are benefits of going to the same school, but sometimes that might not be the right thing for your family. I think the case study of the twins is, again, a very common question that you just raised, but it is all about identity. Is it better to be safe with your sister or brother that you're so close to and you hold hands with through primary school, or is it better to develop? Is identity compromised by separation? Is there any any research on that point about twins that would help parents guide them towards a decision, or is it, again, completely subjective and I think it's still subjective. I mean, I think that there is some advice that it can be good to separate twins because there's this kind of idea, really, I think, that's quite deep-rooted idea in our culture that it's really important to be an individual, that it's important to be true to who you really are, that you need to follow your own path and make your own decisions. And that's quite a fundamental idea in kind of, our society and siblings and particularly twins kind of trouble that in a way because when you're a sibling you're one in a series and when you're a twin you resemble often the other person you're in the same school year and there can be a sense that that's going to be troubling for this idea of being your kind of true self but I think that the idea of the kind of 
true individual self is a bit of a myth, really, because everybody expresses their identity in terms of who they're with and what it's a reflection of their relationships you might sort of portray yourself differently in different contexts and then some twins you might get the sense that separating them would be really good some twins you might get the sense of actually that wouldn't be the right thing for them they would be better off together. It might be that they go to the same class, but then actually end up finding slightly different friends or having slightly different talents and kind of going their own way from there. There's so much pressure on parents. I really want to make it clear that you're not going to do something that's going to mess it all up and make this really terrible decision. And then, you know, like they're going to look at you when they're adults and go, why did you do that? You ruined it. But I think the (laughs) lovely word that you mentioned earlier is agency. Children have a voice in this. And when they're off to secondary school, they will have an opinion as well, which I think should be taken into consideration. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So parents often panic about the sibling relationship because they're absolutely the thought of their children not getting along into adulthood is deeply disturbing for all of us. You know, sometimes I'll say to my husband, imagine if they don't speak to each other as adults. It's such a strange concept when they've had such an intense experience together. Is there anything as suggested by the research that when you know the sibling relationship works well, what are the factors that contribute to that? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I agree. I think that there's a lot of hope and anxiety, isn't there, as a parent that your children will get along. So I think trying to find space for them to be individuals as well as together is useful if you can. Again, that's really hard. Like, it's hard to try and find one-on-one time sometimes. I think that being aware when you're making comparisons It's natural to make comparisons, but kind of having a sense of when maybe that's gone too far or it's not working out so well for one of your children. But also, I just think not panicking. Sibling relationships are long and they ebb and flow. And I said before that they're different in different settings. So you might see your children at home and just think, oh, my gosh, they hate each other. Then if you were a fly on the wall to see them at like holiday club, you might be like, oh, bless them. They're really kind to one another. So don't panic, I think, as well. Seeing children fighting and being quite angry towards one another can make you feel like, oh, this relationship's a disaster. They're going to hate each other. They're just going to lose touch when they grow up. When actually, sibling relationships are really contradictory. Like, They can have care and companionship at the same time as fighting and it's all kind of bundled up together in childhood. So I think don't panic if you see a lot of that, especially if you didn't have that growing up, you know, it can be just part and parcel of it. And then, yeah, I think that I know this is focusing on parenting, but some of my research did look at older people and their sibling relationships as well and sibling relationships have like kind of moments where they come back to being more intense often so childhood is a very intense kind of time in the life course and then there might be times when you drift a little bit and then particularly when your parents get older and need care when your parents die sibling relationships can often 
come back to be important then. So there are people in my study who had periods of time where they didn't see that much of their sibling, but then they came back to being important again at some key moments. And I think that's because sibling relationships are kind of defined by this, I call it in my book, kind of this idea of like being there this idea that they're there as a kind of background presence but they're not necessarily the person going oh you're so great oh I love you so much or it's not always necessarily like that but that doesn't mean that you don't have this sense that you're kind of going through life with this person so I think that that sense that they're there can be activated through the life course when needed not always some siblings do fall out and don't speak and it doesn't work out every time. And of course, this may not be an, a research area for you, but the loss of a sibling can be so deeply traumatic for, for, for children. Yeah, I had a wonderful PhD student, Laura Towers, who did her project on that. And she's a research fellow at the University of Sheffield now and is starting to publish on this issue. And she, yeah, she found that the loss of a sibling in childhood had a huge effect and it was this idea as well of kind of imagining what could have been so imagining what it would be like to have a sibling now here at your wedding or now what sort of auntie would that person have been imagining the idea of the pressure of being the only person that your parents have if you've only had one sibling who you've lost and and she also found that that those people really struggled you know we ask people all the time have you got any brothers or sisters and they didn't know that wasn't an easy question some of them were like well yes but no and so there was this kind of problem all the time of defining themselves as a sibling who had lost a sibling so yeah so her research did show as you say that that's a hugely profound loss Uh, One last point about the sort of parenting of children. Sometimes we will label our children inadvertently, like he's my sporty one, he's my academic one, she's my RT one. And I think labeling is so sort of intuitively attractive because it just makes sense to you, you know, you're making sense. But do you think as a sociologist, is it helpful? Is it something we should steer away from? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. That's so common. And yeah, that I found that to be a really common thing. And siblings would also do it to themselves as well. They would like take on that label. It was often done by parents. I remember there was one, it was a middle child and she was saying that she had like one naughty sister and one good sister. And I would say, well, which one are you then? And she was like, oh, I'm, I compromise them both. And I thought that was an interesting way of kind of understanding the sibship, like the sibling group as a whole. So you can never have a clever two, even though I, there are sure plenty of families with like two really clever children, but it's very, you have like a clever one or a funny one. You never have a clever two or a funny two. And yeah, I think that labelling like that's never... It's never the most helpful thing, but at the same time, it's inevitable and we label one another all the time. And I think it's an, it's an affectionate labeling. You know, it, it comes out because you're sort of trying to make sense of the family that you're creating to some extent. Before I ask you about your book, one last question that I was asked by a parent to ask you is about the sibling relationship when there is an adopted sibling. 
or a fostered sibling? And is there any specific research or a researcher in the country looking particularly at the impact of the first sibling of that new addition to the family? That was something someone asked me to ask. Yes, yes, there are a couple of things. There was one study where the researchers looked at fostering and the so the kind of birth children in the family and they looked at how sibling relationships may be formed between the foster children and the birth children and that was through kind of doing sibling type things together so through kind of sharing toys and showing the sibling your things and getting a kind of relationship of trust that like these are my toys these are your things we can share them in these situations but not these and getting those kinds of ground rules and trust established was really important and then once that was there it was possible for a kind of sibling-like relationship to form so yeah so there's a There's not loads of research. And when I was looking at some of the research around kind of social workers work on sibling relationships, that was identified as a gap that more needs to be done about the children. There's a lot of work about keeping siblings together when placing them in care, but not so much work about what about the children who are already in that household. So yeah, Yeah. I think more needs to be done. But there are a few studies that kind of show some of the techniques that those children use to make that relationship sibling like. Fascinating. So tell us, you've got a book coming out next year. It's predominantly an academic book, isn't it? Yeah, it's predominantly an academic book. But it's about why siblings matter and why they're important for sociologists like myself to look at. But in doing so, like I've used a lot of data from interviews with young people. And also I use data from a project that's called Mass Observation and adults' reflections on certain themes and they're archived. And adults wrote reflections on their sibling relationships and archived them and I've used that as well. So this is how I've been able to talk about siblings later in life too. And what was interesting there was the book includes some of these adults' memories of their childhood sibling relationships, the importance of kind of things like smell and touch, so remembering their siblings' frying chips in the evening and that smell reminds them of their siblings things like that so yeah so the book includes those sorts of data sources and I try and argue that siblings are really important in terms of our identity and the way that our relationships are constructed I explore some of those ideas I talked to you about about kind of how we feel we ought to be doing siblings what should a big brother be like and a little sister be like Mm. and then also I look at how siblings change through the life course so a lot of the themes that I've talked about today really lovely well what's the title of the book and do you know when it's coming out Catherine um it's called siblings and sociology but well I need to hand it in at the end of this month so I think it'll hopefully come out sometime next year ironically I was supposed to be writing it and then the schools closed and I ended up looking after my two children. So I start off with a reflection on that, that actually the book's late because of having to 
police my siblings' relationships at home. I'm sure that was a rich and enjoyable experience. I won't ask you about it. Had it had its ups and downs. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to follow your work and hopefully when that book comes out, maybe we can reconnect. Oh, that would be lovely. Thanks so much, Catherine. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.